On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about Rick Perry's role in Ukraine and his political future, the aftermath of the Botham-Jean trial, and George P. Bush's college turnaround. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. The Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Texans know how to think big. The Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's 2018 annual report highlights a year of big ideas and hope. More at texasstateofmind.org slash progress. And Austin Parks and Rec. Austin's rich history includes iconic and historic places that make our city like no other. Explore Austin Parks today. For more, visit austintexas.gov slash historicatxparks. Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, October 8th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello, investigative reporter Jay Root. Howdy. And uh, political reporter Patrick Svitek. We are also being joined uh, by phone by our friend Abby Livingston, our Washington bureau chief. She will join us in just a moment. Uh, and as always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, Abby, um, let's start with you via phone um, because we knew this Ukraine story couldn't go on for much longer without there being a Texas connection, and that connection is Rick Perry. Uh, what do we know about it? Well, I will try to simplify it as best as I can. Good, thank you. Um, <laughs> so his name first serviced about two weeks ago when the whistleblower complaint came out, and Rick Perry was a, a minor character in it. He, uh, Vice President Pence was supposed to go to the inauguration of the new Ukrainian president, President Zelensky. Zelensky had not made the Trump administration happy. And so as a sign of their unhappiness, they sent Perry, who has a lower rank, as Secretary of Energy. And so that was all we had for a while. But on that trip, Perry chose to engage on this state-owned natural gas company. And the New York Times and other outlets have suggested that he advised uh, two, two Texans to be on the supervisory board. The Department of Energy denies this. This is a separate story from the Trump pressuring the Ukrainian president to get involved in the Biden investigation. And so but what they have in common is Rudy Giuliani, who Texans may remember Rick Perry endorsed in 2007 when he ran for president. And so it's just these lines converging of politics, energy and diplomacy that's been a little bit hard to wrap your head around. Got it. And so is there any evidence here that Rick Perry was doing anything other than his job? I mean, it seems sort of like Trump is trying to like throw him under the bus. So at the end of last week, Trump basically blamed Perry on a conference call to House Republicans, saying he's the one who told me to call the Ukrainian president. Perry has actually said, yes, I did. I did encourage the president. He's, but he said he's emphasized that he encouraged him to call him on energy policy. Um, I think it's important to know that Ukraine is an energy-rich resource country, but it's also in between Russia and the rest of Europe. And so there's a great deal of natural gas pipelines that go across. Um, it's also a very corrupt company. And so it is logical that the Secretary of Energy has 
this falls into his portfolio. Um, at this point, it does not appear there's any wrongdoing. The New York Times went out of its way two days ago to say that everything he's been doing has been consistent with American national security and energy objectives. Got it. Okay, so there have been rumblings back and forth about how long Rick Perry will even stay in this job. There were rumors before that he was getting ready to resign. There are rumors again that he's getting ready to resign. Um, How likely are these rumors and what has he said about them thus far? He denied it at a news conference in Lithuania earlier this week. I think whether or not he resigns at the end of this year, it has been a recurring rumor. It's important to remember he's outlasted almost everybody who joined the Trump administration in early 2017. Uh, He's kept his head low. He's mainly stayed out of trouble compared to other folks in the Trump administration. And so I think it's been sort of a remarkable thing to watch him maneuver these waters in Washington. Jay, obviously you covered Rick Perry for years. Uh, Ryan asks on social media, how has Perry avoided any stain in the Trump cabinet so far? I think it's really fascinating that Perry, who was known in Texas for having so much swagger and, you know, you didn't want to be caught between Perry and a bank of television cameras, that he's really sort of not had that profile, uh, that high profile. Um, I also, when, when you talked about Giuliani, I do remember when he endorsed Rudy Giuliani and it was really kind of out of left field um, and nobody expected it. And it was, it was controversial. And they were worried about that um, even coming up in 2012 because Rudy was seen as, you know, a liberal Republican and mm-hmm. that was like a bad thing for, but that was one of the reasons why it was a, a good political marriage because, you know, Perry sort of was shoring up Rudy Giuliani's right flank. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, uh, you know, fascinating to see how Rick Perry has managed to survive. He's really, really a survivor. I think that's a theme that is... He was counted out in 1990, wasn't supposed to win that. What, you know, so many, wasn't supposed to win the lieutenant governor's job in 1998. So it, I'm not really surprised that he survived. But again, you know, I, it, it's, it's just get out the popcorn and see how this one plays out. Abby, how do you think all of this is going to play out for Rick Perry? Is he going to get tangled up in this mess further than he is? Will he get out the door before there's time for that? Well, I think that's to be seen. I don't think at this point, it's avoidable if he was more involved. I mean, this has all been documented things. It's just whether or not it gets revealed. And so if he was involved, it'll probably come out. If he wasn't, it'll be a non-issue. And so this is what I would stress is that this issue of the president's engagement with Ukraine is pulling in everyone in Washington. And so it's, it's, not unique that Rick Perry has serviced. Mm-hmm. Got it. Great. Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you next time. Thank you and hook them. Hook them. Oh my God. She can't, <laughs> she can't avoid it under any circumstances. Uh, Jolie, let's switch gears and talk uh, about what much of the Texas news media was gripped by last week, the verdict and sentencing of Amber Geiger in the Botham Jean trial. Uh, you've been obviously covering this exceedingly closely for weeks, if not months. Uh, talk about what happened, the outcome in this case. Right. So um, Amber Geiger, for the few of you who don't know, um, (laughs) was convicted of murder in the shooting of Botham Jean. Um, She accidentally, so she she said she accidentally took his apartment for her own. Um, They lived in the same apartment building. He was one floor below her. um, And 
thought he was a burglar, she said, and shot him. Um, There was, you know, at trial, a lot of talk about whether she administered aid, like she didn't administer aid, instead was on the phone with 911, but she also, there was um, deleted text messages with her partner um, that, you know, saying, basically, I need you. Um, I won't say the, like, you know, (laughs) she was pleading for help. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was controversy in terms of the head of the cop union out there um, came and put her, talked to her in a vehicle, asked a sergeant to turn her in camera, her in-car camera off so that he could talk to her in private. Um, there was controversy about that. Uh, ultimately, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, so 10 years in prison for somebody in, I mean, let's say she behaves herself in prison. What does that look like in real life? How many years might she be serving? Uh, she could be eligible for parole in five in five years. Yeah. Okay. So so either way, she'll be serving five years. Right. right. And how does that penalty stack up? I mean, you know, obviously there was an outcry in the community. I think of folks saying that's not a long enough, you know, sentence. Um, how does it compare and what was what were sort of the responses after her sentencing? Right. So 10 years is obviously a short amount of time for murder. Um, that's it, The punishment range in Texas is from five years to 99 years or life in prison. Um there's been, this is the third murder conviction of a Dallas area police officer in the last two years. Um, Roy Oliver got 15 years for the murder of Jordan Edwards in an on-duty shooting. And uh, Ken Johnson got um, 10 years also for another shooting of a teenager who was, it was an off-duty shooting who he said was breaking into his car and then he chased him down and shot him. Um, so... This is in that range, obviously. It seems to be that's the amount around given. Um, There was a lot of outcry right after, like immediately after the sentencing, people came out into the hallway of the courtroom, um, very upset, saying 10 years is not enough, it's not justice. Uh, The prosecution asked for 28 years uh, because that was how old both of them would have turned just days before. Um, Then there were people who, you know, the jury said, told news outlets on in Dallas that you know they felt she really was remorseful this wasn't something she set out to do um it was a mistake uh that they believed was a mistake so they thought 10 years um that's where they landed Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the the sort of hug scene around the world it's you know either moving or uh, notorious depending on your view on it yeah, so immediately after the sentencing, um, victims can give their victim impact statement where they are able, they go up in front of the com- the now convict um, and say how they've been impacted by this crime. Um, the only person who spoke was uh, Botham's brother. He's 18. Um, his name is Brant. Um, he gave incredibly emotional testimony um, that he said he wasn't intending to give and basically said if this was, if she really was sorry that he forgave her, he didn't even want her to go to jail, um, that he loved her like he loved any other person and that he knew uh, both of them wouldn't want her to have to be punished if she was sorry and that she would, he just wanted her to turn her life over to Christ and to God. Um, and then the most shocking part was he then turned to the judge and said, Uh, I don't even know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug? Um, The judge was also in tears and let it happen. And Amber Geiger and Brent Jean just almost like ran to each other and hugged each other deeply. Over and over. Yeah, it seemed. Um, 
There was probably not a dry eye in the whole place. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very emotional. Like you saw the lawyers were crying. Um, and yeah, that did have, some people were just like, this is the peak of Christianity. This young man is amazing and like his forgiveness. And other people were saying like, you know, this isn't something that would happen if this was a white woman who was killed by a black man. Um, so there was a lot of, it's, it's a, it was a very emotional moment that people have reacted to differently. Yeah, it's been pretty fascinating watching this play out nationally. I thought it was a remarkable demonstration of grace. I mean, like just a perfect, you know, textbook example of demonstrating grace. I just... It's interesting because I felt that way too and I was very moved, but then I wondered if I felt that way because I'm a white person of privilege and, you know, like how, right, how this would be seen depending yeah. on, um, you know, your background and your upbringing. Right. And, and like, sure, there's all of that, like, but, and the family and his family's lawyers, like, you know, this is his, he's the one who lost his brother, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's allowed to react however he wants. Yeah. And if this is something that gives him peace and... Right. Well, this story got even a little bit crazier this week. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. So then two days later, uh, one of the witnesses in the trial, um, Joshua Brown, he was 28, was killed. Um, and immediately, as one would think, when a, a murder trial witness gets killed days after the murder trial ends, um, there was questions as to if this was involved, if this was related to Amber Geiger's murder trial. Um, so immediately the there was questions as to how this came about. Um, again, the lawyers for the John family who are now also representing the Brown family uh, and other groups have called for an independent investigation of this because Dallas police is the one handling this. Um, this murder investigation, that has not happened again. Still, Dallas police is handling it. Uh, it has come out now that there are, the police say there are three suspects, two of which are in custody, um, and that it was a drug deal gone bad, um, that three men drove from Louisiana to purchase drugs from Brown, and there was a confrontation in the parking lot, and there was a shooting. Didn't violence, wow. Uh, this story is just like gets more and more tragic uh, by the day. So thank you, Jolie. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more Tribcast sponsors. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. And take classroom learning outside with help from the Texas Farm Bureau. Grants are available for school gardens, raised beds, greenhouses, hydroponics projects, and more. More at txfb.us slash gardengrant19. Okay, Patrick, uh, let's do just a quick around the world on a, a political roundup of a handful of things uh, you wrote about this week that I want to touch base on. Sure. Uh, first is Elizabeth Warren made some uh, big headlines in Texas with a, a staffing move. What do we know there? Yeah, her campaign has announced a Texas state director, so a staffer dedicated uh, to winning the Texas primary, which is on Super Tuesday, March 3rd. And it was notable because uh, her campaign is the first campaign in the Democratic presidential primary to name a Texas state director beside uh, Beto O'Rourke, who's one of the Texan candidates. Beto O'Rourke announced Texas staff um, a few weeks ago. Does so, Leon Castro have Texas staff yet? His campaign is based in okay, San Antonio. Based, National it. campaign staff is based mm -hmm. in San Antonio, but he so has yet counts. to announce staff dedicated to winning the Texas primary. Got and it. so um, Warren obviously signaling a pretty early seriousness about, about competing here. 
Awesome. Uh, Cornyn, you had a story about Cornyn's war chest and how much uh, how much money he's raised in his uh, re-election bid. What do we know there? Yeah, he raised uh, close to $3.2 million in the third quarter. He now has close to $11 million saved up to spend on his re-election campaign. It was his biggest fundraising quarter uh, yet this year. He raised, like, I think, like $2 million in the first quarter, $2.5 million in the second quarter. And so fundraising is, is proceeding <laughs> at a pretty, uh, you know, torrid pace for him, uh, which, you would, which you would expect. You know, he is the incumbent, enjoys plenty of advantages. Um, and, uh, you know, in a state like Texas, there's plenty of, of Republican money still. Um, the big kind of open question here is what kind of fundraising numbers the Democratic candidates in this race are going to report. Uh, we still don't know what a lot of them raised in the third quarter. They have until the 15th to disclose that to the FEC. And remind us who those candidates are. Right. They include MJ Hager, Royce West, Amanda Edwards, Christina Zinzun uh, Ramirez. Um, there are several more. Um, those are just a few of the perhaps more prominent ones. Um, we got one of their one of those candidates, Royce West, the state senator, did release his fundraising numbers. He his campaign said that between when he got in toward the end of July and the end of the third quarter, which would be September 30th, so a little over two months, he raised uh, somewhere between five hundred thousand and six hundred thousand um, dollars, and so obviously not on the same level of uh, John Cornyn. Right. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where the other Democratic candidates come in. Because right now, um, no matter what they say, these Democratic, you know, no matter what they say about being focused on John Cornyn in the general election, these Democratic candidates still have a long, potentially very long and protracted uh, primary ahead of them that they right. need to get through. So that's right now kind of the standard by which I'd be judging them is how much they're raising relative to one another. Great. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, Pete Sessions, uh, looking at uh, Bill Flores's former seat. Uh, not just looking at, he's announced, <laughs> he's in, uh, he announced that he's, he's running for Bill Flores' uh, open seat in the 17th congressional district, which is, um, 80 miles South of the seat that Pete Sessions used to represent and where he lost reelection okay. last year, uh, from the better part of this year up until now, Sessions very publicly flirted with running for his old seat in, in Dallas. Um, but it emerged very quickly, uh, that he was looking at this seat, uh, a week, a week not or two ago. At. Yeah. Not looking at it. And then he announced for it. Um, and what's been notable about this is that there's been kind of this local um, backlash, at least among some Republicans uh, in McLennan County, in Waco, um, and from Flores himself, who has been very vocal in saying that we don't want uh, candidates moving into the district from outside and trying to, I think this is the language that Flores has used, and try to elbow their way to the, to the front of the line. And Flores has been broadcasting that message at every chance he gets. He did a, He wrote an op-ed over the weekend in the Waco paper hmm. uh, sharing that message, did interview on Dallas radio. Uh, just two examples, though, but he has been very outspoken in, in not wanting a candidate like Sessions to run that district. Has Sessions already moved? Like, how? what is that? You don't have to. You, you don't, don't have, have to. There, but yeah, he's he said that he plans to very soon. I don't know if he's actually completed the, the move yet, but he he has said he plans to move very very soon to to wake up. Is it does it? It kind of raises the questions to me of like how how much are you involved in representing your district and your constituents versus like how much you just want to get back to sure. Washington. Sure, so, you know Sessions' claim to that area is that he was born in Waco. He spent some of his childhood in Waco. And when he, and this is a bit of a stretch, but um, if, if that wasn't already a stretch for you, but um, in one of the congressional districts that he previously represented, the fifth congressional district, this was a long time ago, it overlapped with some of the counties that now make up the northern reaches of the 17th mm -hmm. congressional district. So he has relationships in some of those counties. 
Um, but, you know, again, to people on the ground there, especially Bill Flores, they're not satisfied by yeah. those, you know, uh, tentative connections to the district. It is also interesting because this is a, a seat, the Bill Flores seat, Bill Flores' you know, retirement was not one of the ones where you, it, it's like a seat that is highly likely to flip. It's still a conservative stronghold. So if Sessions is looking back to get back into a safe seat after losing a seat that was not safe, it's a, it's a strategic move. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's a much more safely Republican district. If he yeah. were to run for his old seat, I would, uh, in the Dallas, in the Dallas-based district, I would argue that he would have had a, a really tough race um, because the that that district has changed very quickly, and the incumbent there who be, who beat him, Colin Allred, is, is has had a very strong first term so far. Yeah. All right, Jay, uh, I want to talk about a story you published today, um, basically a lawsuit that the Tribune is entering into to try to get some uh, inauguration records. Tell us about that. Right. So uh, Shannon Najmavadi, my colleague, and I wrote about the Texas inaugural in sort of the traditional fashion um, at the beginning of the year. And typically, we reporters focus on all the money that they get from donors. You know, they one of the things that's interesting about an inaugural committee is unlike a political campaign, um, you can't get you can get corporate money. Um, you can, if you're a candidate for office in Texas, you cannot receive corporate money, but for the inaugural committee, you can. So it's sort of a wash in corporate money and big trade group money. Um, but we noticed in the statute that they're supposed to keep the, the inaugural committee, which is this weird entity created by the state and in which donors typically uh, are the, the members of the committee, um, we noticed in the statute that they're supposed to keep a record of these expenditures on the spending side. So where did they spend this money? So like how much they're paying the performers, how much right. they're I mean, Right. George Strait probably got a million of it, I'm yeah. guessing. Okay. But beyond that, like their fundraisers made uh, almost a million dollars off of it. They had a, almost a million dollars in payroll. They also gave $800,000 to charity. We know this because they ha they do have to give us what's called their final report, but the final report, is it's almost nothing. It's basically there were 11 categories of expenditures, including what I just uh, enumerated, but it doesn't say who, who are the payees, mm -hmm. who got the money, and we don't know the answer to that. And we started submitting open records requests thinking and not really – paying as much attention to the statute probably as we should have. So we, we filed this open records request to the Secretary of State's office, and they said, hey, that's the inaugural committee they're supposed to keep. It's like the inaugural committee. These are like donors, like Bruce Bug and uh, Mindy Hildebrand um, and uh, Ray Hunt, you know, these large contributors, basically. And so um, we, we finally figured out that this entity is a state entity, and they should be subject to the Texas Public Information Act. And so once we started asking them and, and we, we ended up suing them, we, we, uh, Bill Elshire is our lawyer on this and, and we've sued to, to try to compel some disclosure. And at this point, um, what we have is a story, uh, you know, to me, the alternate headline would be how to spend $5.3 million in a weekend and don't keep a receipt. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, Literally, we have not one single receipt of this money. We were told by the governor's office that um, there were 30 charities that received some of the $800,000, but who are they? I mean, who are those charities? I, I'd, and and uh, you know, I would like to take this opportunity <laughs> to encourage people <laughs> to reach out to me. Uh, I'm, my uh, direct message is open on Twitter. 
You can hit me on Signal, look at my Twitter bio, um, email me, jroot, initial jroot at texastribune.org. I'd like to know if you got any of the money or if you know how the money was spent, who the fundraisers were, who the employees were that got a million dollars. I'd like to know. We're going to open this up like a telethon. Yeah. Call in now. <laughs> Call now. Uh, okay, Jay, uh, you had another story uh, this past week that I uh, wanted to dive into, t- also uh, about George P. Bush, that I thought was a really nuanced and sort of empathetic look at uh, a guy who went to college, nearly flunked out, and uh, and pulled it back together. Tell us a little bit about um, you know what you learned and how you found out. Right. Well, how I find out, you know, it's so funny, is that his college transcript has been sitting on the internet since 2015 and nobody ever included it in any story, including us. I mean, I didn't know about it until recently, but I learned, you know, he's a very ambitious guy. And the same day that our story came out, the National Review, I think it was, had a story saying that um, he's looking at maybe governor or lieutenant mm-hmm. governor. So he, he's this is a moment for him in which 2022, the 20, you know, we're, I know we're all focused on 2020, but in Texas, the statewides are all looking at, or potential statewide candidates are looking at what they're going to do in 2022. Anyway, I found out that um, his college transcript was sitting on the internet unbothered for four year, almost four years. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, this, you know, heir to a political dynasty flunked a class called public opinion polling in the media. Um, he got a D in, in European history, a D in the oceans, C's in Spanish. He's a fluent Spanish speaker. I'm like, did he just not show up for class? I mean, I thought it was interesting. At the end of his second year in 1996, he was on academic probation. And then we learned Guess who stepped in? Grandma. <laughs> Barbara Bush. <laughs> How would you like to have Barbara Bush ask you about your grades? I, I, I'm terrified just <laughs> thinking about it, right? Um, and the thing that I really loved about this story was it had a really great arc to it because he really turned things around completely. Like he started getting like the next semester after that, after this talking to that he got from the enforcer in the family, um, he started making B's, went from C's and D's and, and even an F to B's. And then by the end of it, his last semester, in which he took, he, he took 21 hours, I'm pretty sure, but he got, there was 19 hours that were credit hours for his GPA um, and got all A's, mostly A's, two B's, um, ended up on the president's honor roll. So he went from academic probation to honor roll in a very short period of time. So just a really interesting kind of personal story. And he basically admitted in an interview that he gave to The Atlantic that he was not, quote, emotionally mature, had an incident where he attempted to break into an ex-girlfriend's house. And so he was having some issues and he seems to have overcome it. What? Uh, how has George P. put his stamp on uh, education at the GLO, which is the General Land Office, which is not always an entity that you think of as having a big role in, you know? Well, students, you know, one, one of the other things that we uh, stumbled across in this uh, filing that was on uh, muckrock.com or .org maybe, um, which is sort of a site where you they have there's a lot of open records on there, um, is his. Uh, he, he had his job application on there and in which he was a school teacher. Uh, he was applying for a school teacher job in 1998 um, and he was a school teacher for one year and he never lets anyone forget that. He, he uses that a lot, um, including, 
you know, since he's been land commissioner. And of course, the general land office oversees the permanent school fund, which um, has a bunch of land and oil and gas investments and stock investments, which generate money for public education in Texas. Um, also, the, the general land office has literally millions of documents and maps and artifacts um, that he's been using um, in the, what he declare, has declared the year of education. He's made 2019 the year of education, and he's going around to school districts, which is also a convenient way to get out there. Mm -hmm. if, you know, if you were looking at a campaign in 2022, this obviously is not going to hurt you to go, including my old school district in Liberty, Texas, um, uh, and he, one of the things that they're doing is they're showing this, this cannonball that was supposedly shot at the Alamo and recovered at the Alamo. Um, so um, he's stressing the education portfolio of the general land office and his own uh, one year, only one year as a, a school teacher um, in, in, in basically sort of stressing his education bona fides. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm glad that you managed to get that Liberty, Texas plug in there. It always happens. Uh, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, Austin Parks and Rec, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, and the Texas Farm Bureau, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Patrick, Jay, Abby, and Jolie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.